Well, as I mentioned earlier in the intimations, you should have received an invitation, perhaps this morning, perhaps this evening as well. First of all, that invitation was for you. It was inviting you to our Christmas Eve service. But it wasn't just an invitation for you. It was also an invitation for you to give to others. And friends, tonight's parable shows us that that's what the gospel is as well. The gospel is an invitation. It's an invitation to us. And when we accept the invite, it's then an invitation that we are to pass on to others. Jesus has told many parables now throughout his earthly ministry. I hope you've seen that as we've worked our way through Matthew's gospel. The parables were stories to illustrate a particular truth about the kingdom of heaven. Often they begin as the one does tonight. The kingdom of heaven is like. They are teaching us something that needs to be spiritually discerned. Jesus did it to to hammer home the truth in a way that our minds would understand by using everyday things and stories. But he also did it in judgment against those who would not listen so that they would only hear a story and not hear the, the spiritual lesson that he was teaching. This tonight in chapter 22 in the first 14 verses is the third parable in a series each of which is illustrating for us that Jesus would be rejected by the religious leaders and by Israel at large. It also shows us that his message would then go to the Gentiles and, of course, that Israel, who rejected him, would suffer judgment. The parable we saw last week spoke of the same things, the wicked vine dressers whom the owner sent his servants to, but they rejected them, eventually rejecting the son, killing the son. But the owner of the vineyard, as the Pharisees admitted, would do something about that. They would destroy those wicked men. So we see that here is another parable teaching the same things. The initial rejection of Israel the message of the gospel extending to the Gentiles, but also the judgment that God is bringing upon unbelievers. And this parable might seem familiar to you from elsewhere in the Bible. There is a similar parable told in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 14, the parable of the Great Supper. But of course, this is a separate parable from that, although they do have elements in common. And there's four things I want us to see about this parable tonight. The feast, the invitees, the invitation, and the wedding garment. So that's the four things we hope to see. Firstly, we see that the kingdom of heaven is described as a feast. A big dinner is being prepared because there is going to be a wedding of the king's son. And what goes out to people is an invitation to a marriage feast. I'm sure perhaps in our minds this week will be some sort of 
planning regarding a big feast perhaps in a week's time or the days round about. I'm sure we're thinking about what we have to prepare, what we have to buy for that. But here we see a king who has been making great preparations for a feast because his son is being united to his bride. The king, of course, we are to take as being God. And the son is, of course, Jesus himself. And throughout the Bible, we often are given this picture of Jesus Christ being married to his people. We're given it in Old Testament and New Testament language. It's interesting that the Bible both begins and ends with a marriage. It begins with the marriage of Adam and Eve. And it ends with the marriage of Christ and his church. And of course all human weddings are pointing to this. God and his people are so united. It's often illustrated for us as a marriage. It is the ultimate marriage. And all weddings on this earth are indeed pointing to that great reality. So we see this marriage language used in the Old Testament in Psalm 45, where we have recently sung. Song of Solomon is all about that. The opening chapters of Hosea, Ezekiel 16, passages in Isaiah, such as chapter 62. Then in the New Testament, we have places like Ephesians chapter 5, I think, where husbands are commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the church. So this is language that would be familiar to the Jewish hearers that Jesus was speaking to in Jerusalem. But in particular, it would seem that this parable is drawn from language found in Zephaniah chapter 1. Listen to these words, a couple of verses in Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 7 to 8, and see how we have really the whole of the story Jesus told captured here. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests, and it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. We see there the language of a feast being prepared, a sacrifice being made ready, guests being invited, but also judgment upon those who will reject and those who do not have the right clothing for such a day. But of course, a feast is a time of rejoicing. It's a time for enjoyment. It is a time for celebrating. Often we celebrate the company we're in. A feast was a time for celebrating the friendship and the loyalty that people had towards one another. When you're sitting at a table having a hearty meal, it tends to be because you trust and you enjoy the people you're with. And friends, this parable is telling us that the gospel is a feast. 
Is that what you've discovered? And throughout the Old Testament, there are plenty of feasts in the ceremonial law pointing to the gospel, typifying the gospel. The kingdom of heaven in the Old Testament is compared to a banquet. Isaiah chapter 25. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the leaves. And of course, the great gospel invitation of Isaiah chapter 55 is that call to come to buy wine, to buy milk, come and get bread. All pointing to the feast that God has prepared for his people. And have you discovered the gospel in this way? That this good news just overflows in your hearts. That the riches of God are given freely to undeserving sinners through the death of his son. Have you come to taste the sweetness of Jesus Christ and what he has done for sinners at the cross? Do you see the love and mercy of God in sending him to do that for us which we could not do for ourselves? Do you see that we don't deserve it, that we cannot earn it, we cannot work our way up to a place at this table, we cannot get an invitation from our own merit, but because the king is gracious to give one and to have those come who cannot pay him back, but whom he is pleased to show mercy. So that's the first thing we see, that the gospel is a feast. We speak of the Lord's table as a feast as well, of feasting with Christ. We come and we are reminded of all that he has done for us, of all the riches that he has accrued for us, which are stored up for us now in our heavenly home, which one day he will take us into the full enjoyment of. We were made for God. In him, I hope we found this morning as we considered all his attributes. In him, there's a fountain of delight. Do we rejoice in him and enjoy him and see that we were made for so much more than the things of this world which are passing. But we were made to know the infinite, eternal God forever. So we see firstly that the gospel is a feast. Secondly, let us look at the two groups of invitees. We see that initial invitations are sent out. They are re-sent out. And then eventually when they are rejected, other people are invited to come to this great feast. I hope we can see that how this parable continues the theme of what the other two have already shown us. That in this parable we see the gospel going out to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. The servants were sent out first. They were sent first to the Jews and the people of Israel received the gospel. They received the way of life through, first of all, Moses, the giving of the law, the tutor, the schoolmaster, to drive them to Christ. Then later on they received the prophets, 
He received the final Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. But that's not all that the Jews received. Jesus is not just speaking of what's happened in the past, but what's going to happen in the future among Israel. Because the servants here are also represented by the apostles. Because in the New Testament church, (laughs) Israel was evangelized as well. Paul's custom was to go to a new city and then to begin preaching in the synagogue to seek first of all to show the Jews Christ from the Old Testament. And so that's what the apostles did, beginning at Jerusalem, then Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. And their witness was accompanied by many signs and wonders. It was custom In those days, for when a big feast was being made by someone important, to send out two invitations. You would send out the first invitation to say that someone was invited, and then the second one to say when all was ready for them to come. A recent, I guess in the past few years, a recent tradition being developed in terms of weddings is not to send out a wedding invite first but beforehand to send out a save the date and then later on you send out the official invite and it's sort of like what was going on here first of all people were told that they were invited and then the official invitation was given but what we see going on in this parable that there's actually three invitations sent out Verse 3, and sent out his servants to call those who were invited. So the text suggests that these people have already been invited. They've already received the first invitation. And then in verse 3, the second invitation is given to them. And they were not willing to come. But then what does the king do in verse 4? Again, he sent out other servants. He sends out more servants. He gives them a third invitation telling them all things are ready to come they've received the first one they seem to have been willing they then reject the second one and they're given a third it was an insult to refuse such an invitation so what we see happening is that those who at first decline are invited again And don't we know that God gives us plenty of chances? As we were thinking of this morning, how many times did you hear the gospel? How many times was the invitation given to you? And if you're not a Christian tonight, how many times have you spurned and squandered the gospel invitation that has been given to you? The invitation was given. As we saw in the last parable, how patient that vineyard owner was. Even when his servants were killed, he sent his son. Likewise here, the invitation continued to be given. Plenty of chances, plenty of time. That is the patience and long-suffering of God with sinners. But what we see going on from verse 5 is that there are two responses made to the invitations. One is of indifference, 
and one is hostility. We see in verse 5 that there were those who were too busy, but they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. They just make light of it. The things of this world were their concern. People take no interest. People pay no attention to the gospel. They have no desire for spiritual things. Where are your priorities tonight? Didn't Jesus tell of something similar in the parable of the sower? With the thorny soil that the good fruit could not be produced because the thorns, the thistles choked it. The things of this world came in, the cares of this world. Where are your priorities tonight? In the here and now or in eternity? We were made for so much more than this world. We were made for fellowship with God himself. Is this your response? Indifference. Putting it off, putting it off. Put that on the back burner. Other projects, other things on the go, other priorities. Listen to what John Calvin says about such people who would think there are things more important than the gospel in their own souls. Calvin says, It is truly base and shameful that men who were created for a heavenly life should be under the influence of such brutish stupidity as to be entirely carried away after transitory things. But this disease is universally prevalent, so that hardly one person in a hundred can be found who prefers the kingdom of God to fading riches or to any other kind of advantages. Do you prefer the kingdom of God or the passing kingdom of this world? What is more important, your life now or where you spend eternity? So there, was th- there were those in verse 5 who were too busy, who responded with indifference. But then we see actually in verse 6 there were those who responded in hostility. The servants were killed, treated spitefully and killed. And of course we know, as we saw last week, that the prophets of Old Testament times, including John the Baptist, were killed. But it was true after Christ's resurrection as well. There were martyrs in the New Testament church. Stephen, James, and again, it's just such brutish stupidity, as Calvin says. Humanity is so opposed to God that people are put to death for believing and for sharing the gospel. Good news given to people. An invitation to come and have it all. And people respond with murder. Such as the enmity of the carnal mind against God. But notice it's the same outcome. Verse 7. Whether that response was indifference or hostility, whether it was to kill a servant, or whether it was just to get on with their own business. 
The king was offended because it was a rejection all the same. It is offensive to God when we turn down the offer that he makes us. You see, the gospel is not just an invitation, it is a command. He commands all men everywhere to repent, Paul said in Athens in Acts 17. And unbelief is a sin. And so we see that the destruction is coming. The armies were sent out to destroy those who did that. And whether you have been openly hostile to the Lord's people, or whether you think just live and let live, but you won't receive Christ to yourself, the result will be the same. That destruction is coming upon all the sons of disobedience. And of course, Jesus was immediately warning the Jews about what would happen to themselves. The city would be burned up. And of course, only 40 years after this, in AD 70, the Roman general Titus came charging into Jerusalem. The city was raised and the temple was set on fire. But it's also pointing ahead also to the end of the world. And it will apply to Gentiles also who will reject Christ. At the end of Revelation, we see the great city of Babylon destroyed. These verses tell us that in a nation where the gospel is rejected, there will be blood. And what is happening in our nation today? Don't we see a nation of such spiritual privileges in times past, not making the most of them now? And we find, well, the census proved last week, didn't it? The majority of people now do not identify of Christ, as Christian in this land. Where will it end? May God have mercy upon us. So this was the initial response of the Jews. And remember what Paul said to them in Corinth. He went to the Jews first. He went to that synagogue. And it said, but when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So then verse 8, then the king said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Now, of course, he's not meaning that we can be worthy to receive salvation. None of us are ever worthy to receive salvation. It just means we prove ourselves unworthy by that refusal to come. That It doesn't mean that we earn it or any way we can we can attain to a standard of worthiness. It just means we're refusing the free offer that God gives us. And so, verse 9, Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. The servants were sent out, and of course that's what we see with the church as well. Jerusalem, Samaria, the ends of the earth, 
the gospel is to be proclaimed. Where the people are, on the street corners, where the people meet, wherever there are souls, they must hear that there is a wedding that they are invited to. There is a great feast for hungering and thirsty souls to come to. So others are invited. And of course, this is the church's warrant for witnessing today. The king sends us out. The last verse of this passage tells us, verse 14, that God has his own secret purposes. We'll come to that. But that's not our warrant for the free offer of the gospel. The doctrine of election stands, but God commands us to go into all the earth. The great commission has been given by King Jesus himself. We have been sent out. All must hear. That means we don't write people off. That means we give them the invitation all the same. Do you remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.20? Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That invitation given by the servants comes from the king himself. It is on his behalf that we invite people to the wedding feasts to come to Christ. So that's the message we have for the world. That's the message for each of us tonight. That the table in heaven is being prepared. There will be a great day when he shall return and gather his bride. Where there will be a marriage supper of the Lamb. And the message that he gives to us is that all things are ready. He has done it all. He has died. He has risen. He has ascended. He's coming back. All things are ready. And this risen Christ is offered to each and every one of you. So come. Whoever you are in here tonight or listening at home, you are invited. The king himself gives you an invitation. Receive it. Come to him by faith. Go to Jesus Christ and ask him to forgive you and to bring you into his kingdom, to give you new life, to take away your sins, to pardon you. And he will. And you will never be the same again. Do it. And those who seek him will find him when they seek him with all their heart. Do you see that nothing else even compares in importance to this? So you're invited. Receive that invitation. Come. And then when you have entered into that new life with Jesus Christ, when you have sat down with him and you've had personal dealings with him, then go out and pass that invitation on. So the servants were sent out into the highways and they gathered together all whom they found. And that's what's happening today. Verse 10, it's still happening both bad and good, 
The wedding hall is filled with guests. The church is being built. Christ continues his work from his throne in heaven through his church anointed by his spirit. But it doesn't end there. The warning is given to us not to rest on our laurels but to make our call and election sure. We have finally the importance of having the wedding garments. Verse 11, but when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. How did that happen? Well, Jesus is not saying to us that someone may sneak into heaven and then subsequently be thrown out. It's a picture of the visible church, that there will be those in the church who think they're right with God and who think they're getting into heaven on their own merit. Here was someone who would not wear the appropriate clothing. This wedding feast was going to be on their terms and not the king's. We're told there will be tares among the wheat that will grow up with them. What is your only ground for being accepted into heaven on that last day? Tell yourself that again. Go over it. What is the only reason you can be accepted into heaven? What's your hope? That's your wedding garment. That's what you're wearing. That's what you will wear before the throne. And if that answer to that question has anything to do with you, you're in peril. But if it has everything to do with Jesus Christ, what he has done for you, you'll never be thrown out of that great chamber. That wedding garment is faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ unites you to him. It means you partake of him and all his benefits. And from that genuine faith, there will be also twined with it repentance. And there will be works flowing from faith. Have you put on the Lord Jesus? That's what we're commanded to do in the New Testament. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you put him on? We all by nature have sins. It's only by faith in Christ, by trusting in him that these sins can be removed. It's only by trusting in his death at the cross. If you do that, you will be cleansed. And it's only by trusting in the life that he lived on our behalf. In which case, that perfect life will be given to you as though you lived it and didn't sin. We only have rags. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, Isaiah 64 tells us. But the beauty and the perfection of Christ's life is given as a robe. To cover us, to cover our nakedness and shame. It's given to all those who will trust him and receive him personally.
And of course, there are verses in the Bible that speak of that. Is it Isaiah chapter 61? Of us being clothed with the garments of salvation. It's to trust in Christ. It's to take Christ and to have no hope but him. And what he has done. Do you have your wedding clothes on? Are you ready if that great day comes tomorrow or tonight? Are you dressed for the wedding? Because remember, there will be no plea in that day. What was this man's response when the great king came in? He was speechless. Verse 12, that man was speechless. And on the day of judgment, we will have no plea, we will have no rebuttal, we will have no clever answer. How often do you hear atheists give such blasphemous statements, such as, well, when I appear before God, I'm going to ask him this and that, and I'm going to demand this of him. What utter nonsense. Every unbeliever will be seeking to flee from his presence, knowing they must face forever his wrath. That man had no plea. God knows everything. We cannot hide from him. We cannot cheat him. We cannot deceive him. We're told in Romans chapter 3, that that's what the law does. We will know in that day we are sinners. Even if someone denies it now in this life. Paul says in Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says. It says to those who are under the law. That every mouth may be stopped. And all the world may become guilty. Before God's. We will have no plea because. We will know we are sinners. And that Christ was offered but was rejected. This might be the final invitation you receive. Do not spurn it. Do not throw it proverbially in the bin. Take it. Come to Jesus Christ. So that man who did not have those garments was taken out. He was cast into hell. Outer darkness. Weeping. Gnashing of teeth. To be the experience and the reality. For all forever and ever. Who will reject Jesus Christ. And remain in their sins. To be punished for them. For eternity. Verse 14. For many are called but few are chosen. This gospel call, this invitation has to be given by us universally. But what we see is that God's secret purposes overarch it all. He made his choice in eternity. And we don't know what his plans are for anyone that we do not yet see in Christ. It teaches us to humble ourselves before him. 
but it doesn't negate the free gospel offer. It shouldn't hinder us or prevent us from going out. We know from Revelation that a multitude that no man can number will be saved. We know from chapter 20 of Matthew that Jesus gave his life a ransom for many. What we see is that those saved are relatively few compared to all mankind. And Jesus taught that, that there were few going through the narrow gate and walking in the narrow way, but many travelled in the broad way leading to destruction. And of course, we also have the same thing said back in chapter 11 of Matthew. The two parallel rail tracks of God's sovereignty but human responsibility. Chapter 11 from verse 27. All things have been delivered to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. God's sovereignty right there. Next verse. Come to me. All you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The same in John chapter 6 as well, verse 37. That famous verse. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. The declaration of God's sovereignty. All that the Father gives, the Son will come to him. But the promise is given by Christ as well. Come to him and he will not cast you away. He will gladly receive you. As the verse ends on this note, I hope we will also, as we see that command given to us to go out into the highways and byways, that we will also do so remembering that God is sovereign in it all. And that it will drive us to our knees in prayer to bless our labours. That it is ultimately his work. He uses means. He's ordained the end, those who will be saved. He's ordained the means, how they will be saved. By hearing, how can they hear? How shall they hear? And so we must go out so that they will hear. And God will work. And he will bring the fruit as we faithfully sow the seeds. So friends, will we be exercised for the lost? When we remember the greatness of the feasts, the goodness of God and the eternal bliss that awaits all the saints. Remember that the warning is there that for those who do not receive Jesus Christ, who do not bow and surrender to him as Lord of all, that they will stand by as the people of God enter into that marriage supper. They will look on and on that day they won't be able to enter. It will be too late. No more offer or invitation will be given to them. All that will await them is the other place. Outer darkness. Eternal misery and torment. So what will we do now? When it is called today, when there is time, what will we do? When the bridegroom tarries, what will we do? 
May we be able to, like Paul, wash the blood off our hands of everyone that we meet. We know we can't save anyone. We know we can't convert anyone. We can't bring anyone to that marriage feast, but we can invite them. We can implore them. We can beseech them. We can beg them. And we do so in complete dependence upon our sovereign God to do that miraculous, supernatural work of regeneration within someone. So may God bless his word to us and bless all our witness for him. Let us pray. Lord our God, you have been so good to us and have not dealt with us as our sins deserve. We thank you for the richness of the gospel that you have brought to us. Life everlasting in fellowship with the one who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Enjoying you forever in your eternal Trinitarian perfections. Lord, may we truly take in what has been given to us and what we now possess. Treasure in earthen vessels. And may it send us out with this great truth that we would truly be burdened and exercised for those who have not tasted and seen how good you are. Please, Lord, be with us. Please send us to our knees in prayer. Send us to the homes and streets round about. Send us to those uncomfortable conversations with family members, with friends. May we plead with them and may you work through all our endeavours. O oh Lord, we pray that you would bless all that we do. May it be for your own glory. Please hear our prayers again for the lost among us tonight, the lost in our families, in our workplaces, among our friendship circles, in our communities. Lord God, have mercy, we pray. But we thank you that we can know that you will work out your sovereign purposes. We can trust you in them all and help us to take heed of ourselves first and foremost that each of us would seek to greater levels of assurance that we are in Christ and that we would keep on by faith and grace in him each day hear our prayers go before us we would ask bless our time of food and fellowship together in his name amen let us conclude our time of worship this evening by singing in Psalm 132, Psalm 132 in the Scottish Psalter, and let us sing from verse 11 to verse 18. Psalm 132, let us sing from verse 11 to the end. The Lord in truth to David swear, he will not turn from it. I off thy body's foot will make upon thy throne to sit. My covenant if thy sons will keep, and laws to them made known, their children then shall also sit forever on thy throne. For God of Zion hath made choice, there he desires to dwell. This is my rest, here still I'll stay, for I do like it well. Her food I'll greatly bless, her poor with bread will satisfy, her priests I'll clothe with health, her saints shall shout forth joyfully. 
And there will I make David's horn to bud forth pleasantly. For him that mine anointed is, a lamp ordained have I. As with a garment I will clothe with shame his enemies all. But yet the crown that he doth wear upon him flourish shall. Psalm 132. Let us sing from verse 11 to the end. The Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen.